Hey, how are y'all doing? So welcome to the branch. Hey, so my name's Dylan. Uh, I'm the pastoral assistant here at the branch. Uh, so I have the privilege to preach to you this morning, or preach this morning. So if you haven't been with us, we are moving our way through Joshua. Uh, the book of Joshua is in the Old Testament. Um, the, entire, the entire book of Joshua is God fulfilling promises given to Israel. And the kind of the biggest one, the overarching one, is the promise of a land, what we call the promised land, uh, that God is giving Israel. And so we're in the middle, we're in Joshua chapter 8. If you want to go ahead and turn, turn there, we'll get to that text in a moment. So Israel's in the middle of this conquest. So they're, they're coming into the land that God promised to Israel, and they are in the process of taking that land. Okay, so before, before we go further, I know we just prayed, but I want to go ahead and, and pray one more time. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. Okay, so let's just pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Father, I just pray um, that as we go to your text, as we go to your word this morning, that you would just be with us, that there's some difficult truths in this text, there's some difficult things that we're going to have to wrestle with this morning. Um, and Father, I just pray that you will help us see these things, that you will move in our hearts and our minds. Um, to know them, to know that you are good, to know that you are holy, to know that you are a loving, just God. So Father, I just pray again that you'll be with us this morning, you'll help us see, you, uh, you'll give us clarity of mind, that you'll move distractions that we have in this room, and that we will just focus on you and glorifying you in all that we do. We love you, praise you, thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so before we get to Joshua chapter 8, uh, I want to propose a question. So how many of you in here have ever had to go through the process of moving somewhere and finding somewhere to live? Probably everybody, right? Okay, so, um, so in that process, right, when you're trying to find somewhere to live, you're looking for a house or to rent, maybe to buy, something like that. When you're, when you're going to look, all of us have things that we look for, right? We different, you know, certain size, certain location, all these kinds of things. Well, when you go into the house, you're trying to inspect it and see, like, hey, do I want to live here? Is this somewhere I want to live? You, if you walk into a house and the floor's rotted, there's mold everywhere hidden, the, the walls are kind of coming in, you look at the foundation, it's, it's kind of sketchy, probably not going to hold up very long, need a new roof, right? The rat's running around. Like, you're going to walk in there and you're gonna be like, what? Like, what is, what's going on? Like, that, this, this is not the place to live. Right? Like, I, I don't want to live there. No, like, who wants to live in that house? Nobody, right? Not a good idea. So if we, if we then, it's like, well, I don't know. Like, well, maybe we're wrestling with this idea, which would be ridiculous, I know, but let's just go with me. Uh, so let's say we call our dads, Macy and I, because we, we're in the process of looking, uh, kind of figuring out where to live next year. And so as we go through this process, we're thinking about these things. So let's say we bring our dads into the picture and say, hey, like, dad, come, come check out this house. What do you think? Well, Clearly, he's going to tell me, and Macy both, that you're fools and you don't need to move in the house, right? But is he telling me that because he doesn't like me or doesn't like us? They don't like us? They hate us? Like, no. Like, he, he loves us and he knows, he sees the problems that are going to come with this house, with the problems that are there, that if we try to move into this place without first doing some reconstruction, and whatnot, we're going to have a lot of issues from the start, but then also in the future. And he sees these things, right? It's the same thing here as, as Israel's going into the land and God is giving Israel the land, which we're about to go to in Joshua. Sin is in the land. Sin is throughout the land, the peoples of the land. And so as God is taking Israel through the land, there has to be, sin has to be cleansed. It has to be dealt with. Okay? Because there's 
going to be problems in the future if not. And God sees these things and he is addressing them in this conquest, in taking Israel through the land. Okay, so with that being said, Joshua chapter 8, starting in verse 1. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. We're going to stop there for a moment. All right, so what is going on here? If, if you've been with us, uh, two chapters prior to this, so in chapter 6, Israel took the city called Jericho. Okay, so that was the first assault. As I said, Israel is going through the land. They're taking cities. They took Jericho. That was the first one. So when we look at this, at this point, right, that the Lord is telling Joshua, telling Israel what to do. There's a difference, distinct difference between this text... God telling Israel, I'm giving this into your hand. I'm giving Ai, this city, into your hand and go and do this. Okay, the same is true in Jericho. God did the same thing. God said, I'm giving Jericho into your hand and now go and do this. And he gave them a command of what to do. But see, there's a distinct difference between those two texts and chapter 7, which is in the middle. Okay, so the last week... Israel ran into a problem, okay? So they went and tried to take Ai, which is the city that we're about to discuss. They tried to take it, but they did it without God's assurance of victory, and they did it without asking, and Achan fell into sin. Achan stole some of the, the things that were supposed to go to the Lord, and he fell into sin. And so Israel lost their first attack on Ai. They lost the battle because of sin. Because of Achan's sin, God had to address that sin, and he did and then it says at the end of that chapter that God was burning with anger with, towards Achan, towards Israel, and then he turns from that anger and he forgives and he moves forward. And that's what we're seeing here, right? God is continuing in the promises that he has given to Israel, that he is going to give Israel the land and they're going to continue in the conquest. They're going to continue to take the land in this way. Okay, so God, like, I think all of us can relate to this, right? If, we've all been wronged by somebody at some point, probably multiple times in our whole life, right? When that happens, like, we are called, you know, perhaps they say, I'm sorry, like, you know, I messed up. There, there are times, like, we want to forgive them, but, it, but a lot of times it's difficult to do that because we might have been hurt really bad, right? And it might take some time to kind of to work through that and show that forgiveness. But in this case, like, God, God forgave quickly, the sin was dealt with, and then he forgave, and the conquest and the promises continued. Okay? So, God gave assurance of victory in Jericho, right? Jericho and Ai, and Ai, he's told them, I will give the city into your hand. And he also gave them the battle plans in both, both situations. Look, look with me at the end of verse 2. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. And we'll explain further the other, um, the other tactics involved that God gave to Joshua. But the, the two points I want you to understand in this is that God gave assurance of victory. He will prevail. Israel will win this battle. And two, it's all going to be done because of God. 
because of his promises, because of his tactics, because of his plan that Israel is going to be faithful and obedient in, but it's, it's God. Joshua did not come up with the plan that we're about to discuss in a moment. It was God. God gave the plan to Israel, and they are called to be faithful and obedient in executing that plan to the T. So the, the, one other thing, the, the, the big difference here that I want to address before we get to the, the battle plans and what occurred is notice in the, I think it's the second sentence of verse 2, it says, only its spoil, talking about Ai, when they take out, only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. That's kind of interesting because as I mentioned a minute ago with Achan and his sin, when he took the things of the Lord, okay, and Jericho, when they took Jericho, which is what he took, God said to give everything that they took, the spoil, the gold, the silver, all these things goes to the Lord, that they're going to give it to the Lord. So right after this, Achan stole that, stole some stuff, fell into sin, was dealt with that. And then now here, God is saying, now you take the spoil of this city. It's kind of a head scratcher a little bit, right? Like, isn't this kind of quick? Like, what, what, is, what is happening here? Why is this occurring? Why is God saying, hey, take the spoil after he just took all of it in Jericho. The difference is there is a head scratcher a little bit, right? The reason for this is what's called a first fruits offering. Okay, so a first fruits offering is a little foreign to us because this is an Old Testament uh, concept, but generally what would happen with this kind of offering is before you took any of the harvest, you would give a certain amount to God off, kind of off the top, if you, if you will. Okay, so it's kind of a the purpose of it was to show thanksgiving for God's provision. Okay, it's showing thanksgiving and giving back to God before you take any for yourself, showing thanks to him. That is what's happened. That's what happened in Jericho. That was the first city that Israel took in the conquest, and Israel is giving that back to God. The first one, that's what God commanded, and so they did. And then in this one, it's different, right? But all, all things on, on the earth God created and they're all his. So he can freely give and take what he wills. And in this case, when he tells them to take the spoil and AI, when they take the city, it's his providence and his provision for Israel that they would have food to eat, they would have riches to build a nation and various other things. It is in his goodness that he tells them this. That's the difference there and the purpose of that. And the next part with this is it, it was also a test of obedience and faithfulness. It's a test of God said to give, and, and Jericho, to give everything to him. Achan failed at that and sinned. God dealt with that sin, and so it was a test of obedience and faithfulness. Will they follow the commands of God or not? Will they be faithful and obedient to the things he's called them to do? All right. So he is, he is restoring Israel by continuing the conquest of the land that God promised to Abraham. So he's restoring that relationship and continuing the conquest. So now, I want to address the tactics involved in this city, which I'm really excited about. I have a little drawing we're about to get to here in a moment. So I'm really excited. So let's look at verse, looks like verse 2. Yep, in the end of verse 2. Lay in ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them by night. 
I think it's easy for us to read that and just kind of like, you know, okay, cool, 30,000 men, they're going to go out, they're going to maneuver somewhere, no big deal, right? No, if you've ever, so if you've ever tried to maneuver a platoon of people, which is 40 to 50 people, so take 40, 50 people, take them out in the woods, get them in some kind of formation in the army, right, and try to maneuver them through the woods and keep your spacing and all these different things, it's pretty difficult. And that's with 40 to 50 people. We're looking at 30,000 people. 30,000 people Joshua's moving. Not only are they maneuvering, trying to move in position and take surprise on AI, but not only that, notice it says by night. They're maneuvering 30,000 people. This is Joshua moving 30,000 mighty men of valor by night. This is the 15th century BC, roughly. It's hard to do this in the 21st century AD, which is, you know, a long time in between there. Like, we have night vision goggles to the army. We have uh, GPS. We have compass. We have good maps. And it's still and radios. That's another important one, command and control, right? And we're talking, again, I'm telling you, 40 to 50 people is difficult to adequately maneuver through a hard terrain. And he's moving 30,000 by night with none of those things. He's got the moon and some stars, which are pretty helpful if you know how to use them, but I don't know how to use them, to be honest. I'm, you know, the army gives you all this stuff. It's like, hey, use it. And I'm like, cool, you know, take it all away. And you're like, oh boy, I think that's a hill over there, but I don't know. You know, it's kind of, gets a little difficult, you know, you got a map reading and stuff, but, but even then. So I just want to emphasize the difficulty in what is being, as what is happening and emphasize the fact that God is giving him the plan. And it is important when they set an ambush, which I'm about to draw in a moment, it's important to take the enemy by surprise, which is why they're moving by night. They're having to get into position without AI knowing they're there so that this plan will prevail. All right. For those of you in the Army, this is my glorified sand table, which is a whiteboard. So um, anyway, so instead of reading through all the instructions of what's happening and then me explaining it after we read it, I'm just going to explain it right here. So. Basically, this is, this is what occurred, and this is what God told Joshua to do. I hope everyone can see this. So Israel, the main body, the 30,000 men, start in the north. Okay, here's my compass. So they're in the north of Ai. Okay, so the text says that Joshua takes 5,000 men. I'm assuming out of the 30,000, takes 5,000, and he maneuvers to the southwest in between Bethel and Ai. Okay, so... This is doing a couple things. The first, so a lot of these tactics, again, that God gave to Joshua, we still use in the army today. And this is where it started. So the army didn't come up with this. God did. So, which is pretty cool. So God, right, not God, excuse me. Joshua is leading the assault, right, leading the ambush around the 5,000 men to the southwest to this point. So this is doing a couple things. The first, the, the, what we use today, the, the leader of, of an ambush, in this case, will always, generally, uh, always a strong word, most likely, typically, by doctrine, will set the ambush line. Okay, the purpose of this is the leader needs to have a visual, you know, idea of the battlefield and know where the proper place to set the ambush line and the kill zone. Okay, so Joshua does this. He, he movers, maneuvers outside of the main encampment and comes down with this, the, with this group, with the ambush unit, sets them in place. 
So this is, again, doing a couple things. The first is they are in place in close enough proximity to AI that they can take it quickly and do it under the, under cover without them knowing that they're there. The second is they're also acting as a security force to Bethel, who was to the west of AI. So they're in between. This is a, another city within the land that's a little further out further out. So they're in between the two. So not only are they a quick reaction force onto AI, but they're also pulling security for the main, the 25,000 and the rest of, of everyone else in case Bethel decides to come in and do something, which they don't. Okay. So it's doing a lot of really awesome things. So basically, so moving on, Joshua sets the ambush line in place, gives them instructions on what to do. And then Joshua pulls back to the main encampment. <clears throat> So he, Joshua move, maneuvers with the main encampment, which again, we still use today because he, the decisive point of the battle is with this group, which is why he went with them. Okay, so they're in place. The sun starts to come up. The king of AI, AI sees Israel to the north, and Israel decides to do similar to what they did the first time. They maneuver this way, which is to the northeast roughly, to, so they would see them. So AI, they spot uh, Joshua and the main group up in the north, and they're like, hey, there they are. We need to go get them. Let's go. So they, I was going to use the red marker, but I'm not now. So they move over. They maneuver out to go after them. It says in the text that Joshua and Israel made it look like they were losing and retreating to sucker in AI out of the city. So that's what they did, and that's what they're doing. So we'll say they pull up right here. Next marks the spot. And they're still gradually maneuvering back, but I'm running out of whiteboard. So AI maneuvers out, and it says in the text that they leave the city open. They're so excited to destroy Israel that they didn't bother to leave anyone to protect the city. They, they didn't get the battle plan, so they didn't realize that was a bad idea until later. So once they did that, we're going to pick back up in the text, and we'll come back to the whiteboard in a moment. So, so, so everybody's tracking. Israel's in the north acting like they're losing. All of AI has pulled off their objective and is chasing them, trying to kill them. Okay, so let's look at verse 18. So we're still in chapter 8. Turn with me to verse 18. So then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward AI, for I will give, I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place as soon as he had stretched out his hand. They ran and entered the city and captured it. They hurried to set the city on fire. So when the, enemy of, so when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. Okay, does anybody see what, what just happened? So... Once they pulled off, like I mentioned previously, the assault line maneuvered on to AI, set it on fire. The enemy, AI right here, this is AI, they turn back and see the smoke of the city. It's burning. So there's a lot of things there we'll get to in a moment. But they see that it's burning. Israel, the main group, turns to come back and no longer acts like they're losing, and they take on a full assault onto the men of AI, the army, and then the assault group, after they set the city on fire, pulls off and then maneuvers onto the army of AI. At this point, they're in a horrible position because they are now surrounded by both groups of the army of Israel. Again, another tactic that we use today. If you get surrounded, you're, you're not in a good place. You're, you're probably going to go meet your maker really quick. 
Um, so I'm um, just, it's not good. And that's the position that they're in. And at this point, let's read the rest of our text and see what happens with the rest of the battle. Okay, so we're going to see what goes on from here. Pick it up in verse, we're going to pick it up in 21, verse 21. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the middle of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was none left that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he had stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of the city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua t- burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Pretty weighty text, right? So why is it, there's, there's obviously a lot going on here, right? They, they killed everybody. They burned the city. It's all destroyed. They hang the king on Ai on a tree until evening and took, it, took him down. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of weight behind this, right? Like this, this is one of those texts in, in Scripture that it's kind of, it's a, again, a bit of a head scratcher. It's a little difficult. So we're going to spend some time discussing this, but I want to just open with the fact that there are hard truths in this that we're about to discuss and go through, but they are very important to our sanctification, to our knowledge of God, to knowing who he is and what he's done. And I want to pose the question here, right, so we're kind of out of a crossroads. This is a difficult text. So why is this happening? Why did God do this? Why did he send Israel and do these things? Why is it so graphic? It's pretty intense. Like, why? I mean, you look at the, the surface of the text, right? You just read just a gradual read through, read through it. It's pretty, pretty difficult, right? It's, it's graphic. It's very descriptive. There's a lot of death. When it says all the inhabitants of Ai were destroyed, all the inhabitants of Ai were destroyed. Some theologians will try to make the claim that this is just hyperbole and that it actually didn't, like that didn't actually happen. That is a horrible interpretation. I'm just going to be very frank. When it says that it is literal, it did happen. I, this, these are, this is difficult, and again, we're about to go through it, but I cannot sugarcoat or water down what the Word of God says. I will not do that. But I do understand that it is difficult to grasp. My, when I first read through Joshua, I think it was last year with my DNA group, we went through a lot of the, all, you know, the whole book, and that was kind of my first time really reading through some of this stuff, and it was pretty difficult. Like, it is pretty difficult to come across. Like, why, what's happening? Why is this occurring? Like, I understand some, 
some things but still wrestling through that, right? So like, I, I understand that it can be difficult, but let's dive into to what is going on. Hopefully, by the end, you may not have complete peace about what's happening when you walk out of here this morning, but I hope that you at least have tools and understanding of Scripture of what is going on and why. And then we can wrestle through that and talk about it more as we go, as we go along. So the first kind of question, or another question that comes up with this is, was, it, was Israel given free reign to go and kill and destroy anything and anyone they wanted? That's kind of a, like, like that's a, a question that needs to be answered, right? Were, were they given free reign? Can they just go do this to whoever? Is this something that just happens and they can just do what they want? Or is there, or is there more happening behind what just the plain surface of the text says? Deuteronomy chapter 20, I think should be on the screen in a moment. So if you want to write this down, the 20 verses 10 through 15 are giving explicit instructions on how Israel is to go to war against nations that are outside of the land. Okay, so there's a, there's a, God distinguishes between when he gives them instructions on how to go to own going to war, that there is a difference between how they are to act and wage war. We're going to read that in a moment. I think it's everybody looking up there. There's a difference, right, between how, how they interact with people outside the land and how they interact with people inside the land. And so what we're about to read in a moment is starting in verse 16. So this is the part about people inside of the land. Okay, this is that, that point in the scripture. So in verse 16, it says, but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to their abominable, abominable practices that they have done for their gods, so that so you sin against the Lord your God. Again, we see that, so, so we're, we're working our way through this. At this point, there is a clear explanation of how they are to interact with people inside the land. In this case, it's to vote them to destruction. And we'll also see, again, that the bottom, part, part of the reason why, we're going to get into more of it in a minute, but part of the reason is for Israel's good. Because God loves his people, Israel. It is for their good that they cleanse the sin out of the land. That's, that's part of it, that's the first part. But I also just want to clarify that in 10 through 15, that God is, gives explicit instructions to try to make peace with those outside of the land, and then if they go to war, then they have other instructions that are different from this, that are a little more normal, I guess is what we would say. God, but, so this is what happened. God is judging the peoples of the land for their sinful practices, and God is cleansing the land of sin. God's people must be clean, so he's cleansing the land of sin to protect his people. It is out of God's very nature and his holiness and love that he cleanses the land. I want to again emphasize at this point that the conquest of the land and what Deuteronomy is describing in this case, all of this is happening at a particular point in time. It is a, at a particular point in time, a particular point in history, it did happen but that is when it was supposed to occur. This isn't something that we can read and then pull out and use it to justify going and slaughtering a lot of people or anything like that. It's for this particular point in time and there's a specific reason for it that we're about to get to. That's the underlying reason. But I want to clarify that it is 
at a specific point in time, and it's not something that we can just yank out and use it the way we want. Okay. And this, again, I want to clarify as well, that this is not an ethnic cleansing. This isn't, God just doesn't like the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, all those different people. It's not that he, they think, he, he thinks they look funny, and so they're going to go kill them all. That's not what's happening. That is not what's happening. What is happening is explained in Genesis 15, which should be on the screen behind you. So this is God making his covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to pick it up in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, he has not Abraham yet, Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be soldiers in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with the great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Here's the important part. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Okay, so kind of unpacking what's going on here. God is giving, making, is, this is part of the covenant of Abraham and what he's making with Abraham. And he's saying, hey, your, your people are going to, he's talking about Egypt, he's ahead of time. They're going to go into Egypt. They're going to be afflicted around 400 years. They're going to come out with great possessions. And then Verse 16, and they shall come back here, come into the land in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The conquest of the, of the land, of what we, what we just read with AI and others, that was planned over 400 years prior by God because of sin because of sin. What is happening in this conquest is divine judgment of sin. It is the judgment of God through Israel judging the sin in the land. God gave the Amorites, who are also the Canaanites, the same, the people of the land, he gave them over 400 years to repent and believe. God showed them grace common grace for 400 plus years and they could have repented and believed 400 plus years because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete so at the point that we're in in Joshua with this with AI that the sin the iniquity it is complete it has has they have sinned they are all wicked people doing wicked things and it has gradually gotten worse over time up to this point. Up to the point where it, now it is time that God has declared 400 plus years prior that he would judge them for their sin. And that is what is happening. It is the judgment of sin. This isn't, it's, it's going back to if you were with us two weeks ago with the commander of the Lord's army in Jericho. Okay, so what hap- basically what happens, Joshua comes up on this guy who is, appearance of Christ, but is the commander of the Lord's army, is who he says he is in that point, and he said, and he, Joshua asked, who are you for? Are you for Israel, or are you for our adversaries? Commander of the Lord's army says no. He doesn't say either one. He says no. Essentially, he's saying neither. I'm not for, I'm not pro-Israel, and I'm not pro-Canaan, or I'm not anti-Canaan. I am for God, for his glory. For his holiness. That is who I'm here representing. 
And so again, in this conquest, it is a judgment of sin in the land. Here's a, here's a bit of a, a litmus test. Are you thinking at this point, just surveying, that God is evil for his judgment of sin on the Amorites, or are you starting to realize the severity of sin? I'm not knocking you either way. I'm just, it is an important point to think, to ponder. And it, again, it's okay to wrestle with these difficult truths, these difficult texts, but that's just a bit of a litmus test to see where you See where you are. Check your conscience. Check which, where you're at. Are we recognizing the severity of sin, or are we pointing our finger at God and saying, how could you do such a thing? Because our answer is important to where the way that we think about sin and the, where we stand before God. I think, I think one of the reasons that we struggle a lot with, with these texts, with these kinds of things, with the judgment of sin, with all the killing and destruction I think one of, the, one of the big reasons that we struggle so much with that is that we don't understand the severity of sin. We, we don't think it's that bad. We look at our sin, it's like, ah, I'm not that bad. I don't kill people. I don't do this or that. I don't steal. We don't understand the severity of sin. And, and I think that is the, one of the biggest roadblocks that we have with, with texts like these is do we have a true, right understanding of sin? Israel, back in the Old, in the Old Testament, actually before we go there, Romans 6.23, the first part says, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Our sin produces death. Our sin leads us to our death. When sin entered in the world, Death came with it. Israel in the Old Testament, see, they were, they were face to face with this reality all the time. Because of their context, because of their time, they were face to face with the severity of sin all the time. They were face to face with death all the time. People died all the time. They had to go to war all the time. Not only that, but Hebrews 10 through 1 through Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 says this, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But... Here's the point. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. They had to make these offerings, which is part of the Old Testament covenant, which Christ fulfilled. They had to, make the, they had to slit the throat of the animal, watch the life drain from it as blood came out. They watched it die with blood. Like, they didn't just shoot it from 400 yards and let it fall and it would go home. They slit its throat and let it bleed out. And they did this continually. That, that was what they were supposed to do. That is what the Lord commanded them to do. That is gruesome. How many of you have ever slit an animal's throat and let it bleed out? Probably not a whole lot of you. At least not regularly. Some of you might have skinned a deer or something, but that's a little different. You already killed it. Like, it's pretty gruesome. 
And so this reality, what, what Hebrews here is pointing us to, is these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin. That is what was happening. That blood, the sin of the animal, did not take away the sins. That's what Christ did on the cross. But they saw the severity of it. Uh, they didn't always matter. They didn't you know, always pay attention to that, but they at least were face-to-face with it. In our day, we don't have that. Praise the Lord, which we'll get to in a moment. But, but still, I don't, we don't have a right understanding of the severity of sin because of the particular point in time that we are living blinds us to the severity of sin, and that makes passages like these even more difficult to grasp because they seem so foreign and far removed from anything we experience in our lives. They seem, I understand that. They seem foreign. They seem out there. They're kind of like, I don't know how to relate to that. That seems very bizarre. But we have to have the right understanding of our sins. Many of you, probably everybody in this room, I would imagine, knows somebody that has cancer or has at some point known someone who has cancer. And I understand this is a, it's going to be a very touchy subject but I but I want but I want you to think about this for a moment. When this when this person has cancer, whoever it is, I think everybody in here can think of somebody. When they get diagnosed with it, when they get diagnosed with cancer, their lives change radically, right? Like they get the diagnosis, hopefully they catch it in time for the doctors and different people to come up with a plan to 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 address it and hopefully heal it. But assuming that that happens and they catch it early enough, their lives change radically because they take, we take cancer seriously. When we see it and we, we know about it, we know what it does. We know how serious cancer is. We know what it will do to our loved ones or ourselves if we have it, if we don't treat it and don't take it seriously. I understand even then it's different, but, but you see my point. We take that seriously. Somebody doesn't come up with somebody who's just been diagnosed with cancer and say, hey, bro, it, it's not that big a deal. Just take some vitamins, take a knee, and drink water. That would be completely ridiculous, right? Because it's so intense. It requires intense radical treatment, doctor's visits, surgery, radiation, chemo, very intense treatments to work on this cancer. You don't take vitamins and drink water and think it's going to be okay. So why don't we look at sin and address it and say, oh, it's fine, it's not a big deal, whatever. If we take, if we take cancer seriously, knowing that it will kill us, why don't we take sin the same way? Because it will kill you. If you're not in Christ, it will kill you. Even if you are, we still have to keep fighting sin. The other part with this, with this illustration, a lot of times with, with cancer, right, somebody will be diagnosed with it, but they generally a lot of times look pretty healthy. I understand not all the time, but a lot of times they do. A lot of times you don't really see symptoms at first. But the reality is they have something that is going to kill them and is very serious. It's the same thing with our sins. Many of us can, can put on a face, can put on a, a show, act like we're good, and nobody even has a clue. But the reality is the sin is still there. God sees all of our sins. And they must be atoned for.
Surprise. All right, I'll move through this kind of quickly. Redemptive history, it's kind of a, a fancy term to basically show how God has related to his people over time throughout scripture um, and how salvation is going to come. God created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1 and 2, created everything that's in it. In Genesis 3, we have the fall, okay? The fall, the fall of man into sin, right? Eve took the apple, the, the knowledge of good and evil, went against what God said, gave it to Adam, Adam sinned. We fall into sin. So Joshua in the Old Testament is somewhere in between here, after the fall. That is where they're located. So because of this, as I was mentioning earlier with the Old Testament sacrifices, those sacrifices, the blood, did not take away their sins. It did not pay for their sins. It was foreshadowing the perfect one who will, which is Christ. The Son of God came down to us in the form of man, incarnate, lived a perfect sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, and rose again on the third day for our sins. He, Christ, paid the price for our sins, for Israel's sins, for everyone's sins, who has faith in him. Here, those Old Testament sacrifices were foreshadowing Christ, the Messiah, to come, who died on the cross and rose again for us in glory. So, as we move to wrap, start to wrap up, I also want to point out, as I mentioned earlier, with the conquest of the land, this was a divine judgment of sin at a particular point in time, which also is foreshadowing the divine judgment of sin that all of us are going to experience one day. Judgment day is coming. It is coming. We will all, at some point, meet God face-to-face -face and give an account for our sin. The conquest of the land, that judgment of sin is foreshadowing the ultimate and final judgment of sin. And if we do not have faith in Christ, if we have not been born again by placing our faith in him, we will meet our maker and we will be on the wrong side of that separation. When God separates the sheep from the goat, the sheep from the goats, we're going to be you're going to be on the wrong side if you're not if you have not placed your faith in Christ. So I want to by they repent and believe. For the believers in the room, we've been saved from the power of sin, but not the presence of sin. We have been saved from the power of sin, but not the presence of sin. The presence of sin is still with us today. We have to continually fight our sins. The other part, when we we, we all have friend groups in here. We're all a church. We're all a body of Christ, right? So when we have our sins and you see a brother or a sister that are in their sin, we got to work with calling them out on that sin. And I don't mean this in call them out like, oh, diamond you out. No, it is in love that we do this. In love that we call them out and pull them to the side and talk this through. Instead of saying, ah, yeah, I know that you sinned. You're telling me, but it's not a big deal. It's just... Because I know that I've done that many times. I know that I struggle to do that because I'm trying to, you know, you probably get antsy in a situation like somebody's telling you something you don't really know what to do, right? But, but we have to work on this. I'm not saying beat people over the head, but I am saying we have to take this seriously. We have to help each other, love each other, pray for one another in our sins. All right. 
Last part as we close. I want, I want to read the last part of chapter 8. Uh, yeah, the, starting in verse 34. So back in Joshua 34. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. So this entire passage, this, this final part, so the, con- the, the battle of AI is over, they've won, they've pulled off, they're in a different location, and these last, I think it's five or so verses in this text is Israel stopping to worship. Despite all the things we discussed, despite the severity of what was happening, despite the weight of what was happening, in light of all of that, not despite, in light of all of that, they worshiped. As difficult as these doctrines are, as difficult as what we just went through may be for many of us, especially if you've never heard it before, I, I hope and pray that it is leading us to worship this morning, to worship our great God who is holy, righteous, and just, as loving as his son to die on the cross for our sins. And as for believers, if you're a baptized believer, we're about to go into a time of communion. And so as we do this, this is a time to reflect. This is a time to reflect on what Christ did on the cross for our sin. It's a time to examine our hearts to see where, what sin we have, what sin maybe we've been ignoring, what sin we know that we have, but we haven't really done anything about it in a while. Maybe we have before, but we haven't been recently something we don't see, is taking that time to step back as you break the bread that represents Christ's flesh and tip it in the juice that represents Christ's blood. You're taking it in remembrance of him. This is our time to respond in worship, respond in singing after. Now, if you're you're not a believer, if if you're not there yet, then we're so glad that you're here. Uh, But we do ask that you uh, allow us this time to to respond in worship. Um, We hope that you repent and believe. Hope and pray that you do. Let us pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Father, thank you for this time we're able to come together and to worship you by, by going through your word, by singing and lifting up your praises and by taking communion. And Father, I just pray and, and hope and ask that you move in our hearts this morning. Now, I know there's different, uh, different groups of people in here, some that have been exposed to these truths before, some that haven't, some that maybe have, they're still wrestling through it. There's different groups. Father, I just hope and pray that your spirit would move in and through us to help us know, believe, and obey you, to know and love you more, and to glorify you in all that we do. We love you and we praise you. We thank you for your grace. We just never pray. Amen.